We leave the uh, Torah behind and move into Joshua uh, this morning. Uh, we're going to make it today into the promised land. Oh, good. Yeah, it's worth a little cheer, you know, a Christian cheer. <laughs> no, not too exciting. And uh, the book of Joshua is all about the arrival, making it, getting there. Uh, something that's been promised for hundreds of years now comes to fruition in these uh, moments. The, the book of Joshua, to understand it as a whole, is quite simple in terms of the way that it's set out. The first part of the book is about them uh, getting into the land. They get over the Jordan and uh, move into the land itself. Then they have to conquer the land, uh, the central part of the book, uh, focusing on just a, a few conquests and then summing a lot of other ones up with a few uh, sort of concluding verses. And then the second part of the book is all about how they divided up the land amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. If you want to think about all this in more detail, then we spent uh, uh, seven or eight weeks preaching our way through uh, Joshua uh, in 2006, and uh, I put a link to that on my blog this morning so you can uh, pick up different chapters. We looked at a chapter or, or a couple of chapters a week, I think, a few years back. So our key verse, then, is about God's promises being yes. Uh, And in the end, that's what they needed to take hold of. That God's promise for them was and always is yes. And that's what we also need to take hold of. That in Christ, that's what the New Testament makes clear, that in Christ, these promises that God has made to his people become promises that God is making to us. They are yes to us, so that we also might share in the glory of them, that we might also say the Amen to them. So how do you enter the promised land? That was what the Israelites had to face. We have the same question for which we might use different language. How do you receive the things that God has promised How do you take hold of the things that God has promised for you in your life? Now, there'll be all kinds of different promises, and and maybe already now you're thinking about this at different levels. That the Bible is full of promises, and there may be some of those promises now that are coming into your mind, and you're thinking, I really need to hold onto that promise, to, to step into it. Paul says, for example, you can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's a promise, but we don't often live in the fullness of that promise. So there'll be lots of promises in the Bible that maybe are coming to your mind now. You're thinking, well, how do I step into those? How do I claim that promise for me? How do I make that promise a yes? And then there'll be more specific things. Maybe particular things that God has promised you. Maybe in thoughts, desires, and visions. Maybe things that you've uh, felt God promised you years ago, and you're wondering how or now, if ever, they will come to fruition. Well, all God's promises are yes. So how do you step into them? How do you take hold of them as you move out of the desert place, as we looked at last time? So I have five words that are five themes that weave their way through the book of Joshua. 
We're introduced to them early on, so we'll spend most of our time in the first few chapters of Joshua, but you'll easily, I think, see how those themes go on to weave themselves through the rest of the book. Five themes that if we can... I don't know what the word is. If we can grasp, if we can see, if we can uh, trust or understand, will help us to move from where we are more fully, I believe, into God's promises for us. So the first word then is uh, continuity. Continuity. The people of God wander in the desert for 38 years. And then in Joshua chapter 1, you get this really brilliant start. Moses, the greatest leader, Moses, the one who'd been the pioneer of everything that God was doing, is dead. Moses is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the river Jordan. I wonder how they felt at the news that Moses had died. Yes, of course, it was God who'd done it all, but in many ways, Moses had become for them a a human representation of so much of what they'd received from God. And you will know that it's human tendency to put our trust in things that we can see and feel and touch, even if they be fallible human beings, than it is to look beyond the human being and put our faith and and our trust in God. We so easily move from trusting him to putting our trust in in, in a representation of him. And so maybe it was a really good time that Moses should die. But in any event, they're in this strange new world, a new leader, a new boss, a, a new regime. They will have asked themselves, just like we do when we get a new boss or a new leader or a new regime or a new government, will it be the same again? We're unsettled, we're unnerved. And that's where they are. And when somebody dies or moves on, we will most of the time stress the discontinuity that has taken place by that person moving on in one way or another. It won't be the same anymore. That could be a good thing or a bad thing, but we'll stress the discontinuity. Things will be different now. The Bible, though, does the opposite here in these verses. Moses, my servant, is dead. (laughs) Now then, just get on with it in exactly the same way as you would have before. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan. It's almost as if Moses is dead, but that doesn't stop, doesn't hinder, doesn't change, doesn't alter anything at all. What the Bible stresses here is the continuity of all that God is doing. The plan carries on unchanged. At verse 5 of chapter 1, if you've got it open in front of you there, pushes the point home a little bit more. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The work will carry on exactly the same. You see, we are part of the continuous work of God. God does not stop and start. We might choose to get involved and bow out, but God's work continues. And knowing that we are part of something that's been going way back and will go on into the final day, I think is a great perspective for me to help me step into what God wants for my own life. Uh, And I wonder whether that's why the final chapters of Joshua, the second half of the book, is all about the dividing up the land. It's dead boring. You'll love it when you come to read it. 
in that sense. Because it's just lists of names and lands. And you're left thinking, so what? But imagine for a moment if the names in that book were the names of your family. Your ancestors. And the land that was mentioned in that book was the land that you are living in centuries later. Generations later. You imagine how precious those names and that land would be to you. And suddenly you get insight into what it was like to be part of the people of God, the people of Israel, the Jews, and to hold on to these words that spoke about their ancestors and their land. Because every morning when they woke up and they opened their tent and they stepped outside onto the land that was north, south, east, west, wherever it was, That same land that was talked about in Joshua, they knew they were part of God's promise. Every day was a tangible reminder. This is the promise, the land that God has given us. This is the land where our forefathers lived. This is the land where they buried their children's children, children's children going going back. This is the land that we own, that we share in. Well, that God owns, but God gave them stewardship of. And suddenly you get this very different perspective. It was not just about them and now in that little moment. But it was about them being part of something God started way back and was still doing today. We need that perspective in our lives. They could look back, the book of Joshua talking about the land that they were now occupying, and they could look beyond the story of Joshua, way back to Moses, to the Exodus, way back to Joseph, way back to Abraham, and that brilliant promise that I'll bless you. The land that they walked on was a sign of that blessing, that I will make you a blessing to the nations around. Well, God hadn't quite done that yet, but it was a promise that they could look forward to God fulfilling. They they would get a huge glimpse of it when King David came along, the days of David and Solomon. But they were part of something much bigger than themselves. And we sometimes as a church, we're we're pushed, especially now in our culture, we're pushed to the sides, we're pushed to the margins, we can feel that we're totally irrelevant. Unfortunately, sometimes we act like we are. But if only we could remind ourselves that we're part of this great continuous story. And so the New Testament picks up many of these themes. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We're, We're part of this. We're part of this. And so as you read those names in Joshua and you read the allocation of the land, that's what God was doing that would continue down through the ages that you and I have become a part of. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles, that's you and I, are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body. Share us together in the promise in Christ Jesus. And so that's what... Uh, perhaps those back ends of, of Joshua is, is all about. Started right there, the very first verse. Look, th- this is a work that God is doing. Don't worry that Joshua is now around. It's my work and I will carry on doing it. You're part of something so much bigger than yourselves. Lots of people uh, spend a, a lot more time, or perhaps increasingly so, uh, searching their, or researching their family tree. We're anxious to know where, where we come from. 
We're anxious to understand who we are because of what and who our family have been and used to be. This is it. Our roots go deep into everything that God has promised. And so the writer of the Hebrews would say uh, uh, that we take our place. That we take our place with Abraham, Joseph, Moses. We could go on right the way through Joshua, uh, through the judges, on to the kings, to David and Solomon, and so on, all the way to Jesus. This is what the writer of the Hebrews says. We're, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And because we're surrounded by so many people that are part of the promise, it encourages us and stirs us on to step into that promise for ourselves. Who were the witnesses? Well, Hebrews chapter 11 is that great long list of people by faith. Abraham, Moses, Joseph, uh, uh, David, Solomon, and so on, right through the Old Testament. But they're not the only witnesses, are they? Because you and I are, are surrounded by witnesses. Maybe for you, one of your witnesses was one of your parents, your father or your mother, or a grandfather, gr- gr- um, or, or a grandmother, an aunt or an uncle, or a friend or a neighbor. We're surrounded by people that are caught up in this ongoing story of what God is doing. It says, wow, this is bigger than me. I can step into this because of all that is going on before, presently, and all that will go on into the future. First word, continuity. We're part of something bigger. And that encourages me. That inspires me to step in to what God might have for me because I'm part of this bigger story. Know your place then in the family. Second word, courage. Courage. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. It takes courage to step into God's promise. Like a gift, you need to receive the promises that God has for you. And so often the way into that is to take a step of courage. What did they need to do to claim the promise? Sorry? Cross the Jordan. Yeah, then what? Well, they needed to step to move into, to take hold of. I will give you every place where you set your foot. There's the promise, but they had to step into it. They had to take courage in both hands and step in. Now, it wasn't a courage in the sense that uh, they would step in and God may or may not give them the land. That's not the context. We we live like that sometimes, don't we? Well, I'm going to take this courageous risk because God may or may not be faithful. And therefore it feels like a ginormous risk. That's not what God asks us to do. He asks us to step into the promises because we know that we can trust him. And if you step onto that piece of land, it will be yours because that's his promise to us. I'll give you every place where you place your feet. Again in chapter 3, if you've got it open there in front of you, uh, a a more challenging picture. The river Jordan separated them from the promised land uh, and as we said a few months ago, they they needed to cross it to get into the land. And this is what God says about crossing it. Get the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant 
So the ark that was the central part of the tabernacle that we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, the presence of God in their midst. So essentially, go with the presence of God. When you reach the edge of the Jordan waters, go and stand in the river. The chapter tells us that it's harvest time. The Jordan River would have been about 15 feet deep and up to a mile wide. This was a gushing, fast-flowing river. This was no pebble stream. But go and step into the river. Take the step of courage, and I will give you the land. Fortunately, we're helped to understand where that courage might come from. So we're back in Joshua chapter 1. Because as soon as uh, the Lord says to Joshua, I want you to be strong and courageous, he, he gives him the best piece of advice, not surprisingly from the Lord, the best piece of advice as to how to build a life that's strong and courageous. So be strong and courageous. Be careful to obey all the law. And do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Then you will claim the promise. Then you will receive the inheritance that God has already given to you. Joshua is given the secret. The book of the law was what? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It was the five books that we've been looking at since the beginning of the new, new year. And, and, and God says to Joshua, you, 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 need to, you need to get that book and you need to so absorb it that it becomes part of you. Meditate on it day and night. Literally ruminate on it, ponder it, reflect it, absorb it. Let it fill your mind, your gaze and your sights. Why? What will the book of the law do? I hope you've seen that the book of the law always points to God. It introduced us to a God who was the powerful creator, to the God who was the powerful rescuer, to the God whose love would not stop until he'd made a way to reconnect with the creation that he had lost, that God is powerful to provide and to heal and to make peace between us. So as you study the book of the law, it will fill your gaze with who God is. And that's the only way, I think, to be strong and courageous. When we get to David and uh, we look at his story, he started off in in service of God. uh, And one of the most famous stories is when he took on Goliath, the great giant. And all the people are talking in the passage all the time about how big Goliath is. He's this big and he's got this big shield and his helmet is this heavy and so on. And then we're introduced to David, who only talks about how big God is. And it was David that defeated Goliath. And it's the same advice here to Joshua. You have to fill your mind with who God is. And the only way to do that is to go back to the book of the law where God is revealed. We have a whole Bible now. They didn't. Go back to the book of the law where God is introduced as the powerful creator, the powerful rescuer, the powerful provider, the lover who will not let go till he is reconnected with those that he loves. You might then expect this verse to read, do not let the book of the law depart from your ears. But it doesn't. From your mouth. 
Why is it so important for you to be somebody who speaks out God's word? Well, maybe a couple of things to think about. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So your ability or your confidence to speak out God's word is related to how full of God and his purpose your heart has become. We would like another test, wouldn't we? But what's coming out of your mouth? In a year when we're spending our time reading the Bible, perhaps more committedly than some of us might have have done for a while, when we're renewing our emphasis and encouraging each other to read it daily, we would quite like that to be the test. Well, I'm doing pretty well, thank you. Or I'm not doing so well. But the test is this. The test is not whether you've read it, it's whether it's there, and and because it's there, it can't be contained there, and you are therefore a person that speaks it out. So are you someone speaking out the word of God to your spouse, to your children, to your parents, to those God has gathered around you, to your friends and your neighbours? That's almost too challenging for me. And maybe there's a second reason. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. But the Bible also teaches us, and we know from our own experience, that when we say something, it's kind of more real and more concrete than when it's just a thought. You will know that in journaling. When you have to write something down, it's the same discipline. You have to write something down. You have to take what can be a vague thought, and you have to particularize it. With actual words, you have to say something that is concrete. You can say something that's woolly, and people just go, what are you on about? But our, our mind can just sit with all kinds of vagueness, and we leave the vagueness there. And God says, no, I need you to speak it out, because that makes it more real, more concrete. It's why sometimes when people have a kind of hurts and pains and, and things, they find that really hard sometimes to speak it out. Because when you speak it out, it makes it more real. When you speak it out, it says, this is true. This is part of who I am. And so there's this great verse uh, tucked away at the end of the Bible in Philemon. I pray that you may be active in speaking out the word of God, in sharing your faith, depends which translation you find, so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. In other words, your understanding will increase as you speak it out. Now, many times we're afraid to speak it out because of the vagueness of our thoughts and we're not quite sure what we think. The Bible says, no, go the other way. Start speaking it out. Take what is vague and make it concrete. Don't let God's word stay fuzzy, but speak it out. And in speaking it out, your understanding will grow. It's exactly the same principle in writing it down. It's why the the simple journaling of soap, we would encourage you to have a go, or at least journal in some other way, because it takes what's vague and makes it concrete. So, courage, the word of God, 
Where is the word of God? How how rooted is my life in it? Well, am I meditating on it? If I am, then I will be speaking it as well. And there's a challenge there. And so Paul would write to the Colossians and says, look, as part of your rhythm as a community of God's people, the word of God needs to dwell in you, to live in you richly, abundantly, as you what? As you speak it out, as you admonish one another with all wisdom. Where does the wisdom come? From the word of God. As you sing, what are you singing? You're singing the Psalms of God, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude and thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Third word, consecration. Consecration. It's getting worse. It's going downhill in terms of challenge. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things. The holy shall see God. Without holiness, the Bible tells us, no one will see God the Lord. That's why times of revival, times when God's working in particular power, there is a a heightened sense that everything that is wrong in our lives, our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions, a heightened awareness to the way that we live and to the way that we fall, fall short of God's standard. Now let's be very clear. Consecrating ourselves is not trying harder. Consecrating ourselves is not putting a lot more effort in to try and make ourselves more holy, a bit more acceptable, a bit more right with God. Because you can't do that. The whole history so far, the book of the law, is that whatever you do, you cannot consecrate yourself. You cannot sort the mess that you are in out by yourself. Remember the tower they built from earth to heaven that didn't reach? Because one day heaven would need to come down to earth. You cannot do it by yourself. Consecration is allowing God to make you holy. It's what Leviticus is all about. You can draw near to God because God himself will provide a way to cleanse you, to purify you and make you holy. Do you notice in all of the the, the verses in the Torah, never once are you encouraged to work really hard to do this, to do that in order to put yourself right with God or in order to attain holiness in some way whatsoever. It's not there at all because you cannot do it. Consecration is not you working harder tomorrow morning. Consecration is you saying, Holy, Holy Spirit, I need you to do a work in me that because of Jesus, you can cleanse me and purify me and put me right with you. And there are some rather startling pictures in the early chapters of Joshua about how important and how committed God is to this. So if you turn to chapter 5, it opens up with great confidence, Joshua chapter 5, because they've crossed the Jordan, they're in the promised land. Could have been a big cheer, but there wasn't. They've crossed the Jordan, they're in the promised land, and it says that the Canaanite kings are in fear, are in panic, because of the work of God. Because they've seen God at work, leading the Israelites across the Jordan, there's fear all around. We have visitors. Thanks, Tony. And because of that, they're quaking. And if you were the commander of the army, you'd go to the people, come on guys, let's get them now. Let's march on the land when the kings are in, uh, in utmost fear. Let's march on the land when the people are quaking in their boots. But no, verse 2 of Joshua chapter 5. What do you read? 
make flint knives, charming, and circumcise the Israelites again. Verse 2 is a sharp reminder, no pun intended, that before you rush off to do what God wants, you need to stop and get yourself right with him. They'd neglected circumcision. Remember, it was a sign, a mark in the body of the covenant relationship, a mark that they belonged to God, that they would always be His, that nothing could separate them from Him. But they'd neglected this. You cannot rush into God's promise whilst neglecting something God brings to your attention. There'll be times God doesn't bring it to your attention yet because you're not ready to deal with it. And it's a part of a journey from glory into glory. But you cannot rush into God's promise without dealing with something that God has already brought to your attention. Are you jumping up and down today and saying to God, I'm all ready to go? But God is saying, what about that relationship? What about that bitter root? What about that neglected attitude? What about that unresolved, unconfessed, unforgiven part of it? What about... And that's what was happening here. They were all ready to go, full of confidence. They crossed the Jordan. The kings were quaking. And God says, hang on a minute. You cannot step into what God has for you whilst you neglect some part of your life that God is pointing out. So there they are, stuck in the camp until they were healed, verse 8. Physically, yes, but spiritually, too. Until they were right with God, until they'd sorted out what stood between them. And there's a lesson here too, I think. Forgive me for a moment, the picture this might create, but I'll take the risk. Uh, It was one thing, I suggest, to be circumcised as a young baby in a pre-anesthetized world, but something entirely different to get a blunt flint knife out in the prime of your life. The longer you neglect the things that need sorting in your life, the harder and more painful it becomes. True or false? True. True. Don't keep putting it off. You see, there was good reason to put off this whole circumcision thing. They could take the land. The kings were scared. God says, no, don't put off. Don't neglect what I've pointed out. Don't put off what needs sorting in your life, even though you could make a good case for dealing with it later. Maybe the greatest act of faith, the greatest act of cut, excuse me, of courage for you to step into what God promises you is to deal with that thing that you know you've neglected. And even now you know what it is. You don't have to go searching, it's there. The Spirit of God's just hovering and you know the thing that you've neglected. Decide today to talk with someone, to pray with someone, to do business with God in that area of your life. Otherwise, it stops there, where it stops. And you will not move on into God's promise. Fourth word, commemoration. Looking at this book again, left me wondering whether the reason that we don't always go right on and grasp hold of the fullness of the promise that God has given to us is because we don't stop often enough to celebrate and to give thanks. Remember the feasts in Leviticus? That their annual, uh, that their the, the 12-month cycle was punctuated by feasts to rest, to remember, and just to party, to rave, to celebrate, to say thank you to God. 
And here in chapters 4 and in chapter 5, Joshua leads the people, directed by God, to make sure they establish remembering, commemorating, celebrating what God wants them to do. So they're about to cross the River Jordan. It's 15 foot uh, deep. It's about a mile wide. The priests have to go in first. Uh, And what would you do? I'd get across as fast as I could. That would be my faithful strategy. And God says, no, Joshua, get 12 men, get them to go down into the riverbed and to pick up 12 big boulders and to take them out to the other side. Why? Because we want there to always be a visual sign that causes people to stop and remember all that God has done, to stop and remember how far they have come. They put those stones in Gilgal. Wherever you were around Gilgal, you'd see these stones, and your children would go, what are those stones? And you would tell the story. This is what God has done. At that point in our history, this continual history of all that God is doing, that's how far we had come back then. You can remember how far you'd come. What do you do to remember how far you've come. What are the stones in your life that remind you to be thankful and grateful, that cause you to look back? And then in verse uh, 10 of chapter 5, they stop and they celebrate the Passover. The Passover. The Passover that God had promised them one day, 40 years previous, that they would celebrate in the promised land. And with one foot in the promised land, they stop to remember, to celebrate. So there's all this stuff to do. There's all this land to conquer. And there are these kings that are are scared, quaking in their boots. They could probably root out all the people of the land if they just got on with it now. No. They stop. Circumcision. Get themselves right with God. Stop. Remember. Celebrate. Commemorate all that God has done so far. It was an act of remembering how far they'd come. And it was an act of remembering that God had kept his promise. What do you do to celebrate, to remember? What do you do that causes you to stop and to be thankful? It wasn't just then, you see. They, they, they would conquer uh, some of the major uh, uh, areas in the middle of the land... And they were by no means finished, but it says in chapter 8 that at Shechem, they stopped again, and they had another little party, another little celebration. It wasn't that it was over, that they'd conquered the land, but part of the rhythm of their life, as they stepped into the promise, one step at a time, every so often, more often than us, they would stop to remember, to be thankful, to celebrate, to look back at what God had done, so they might trust him to go a little bit further. And so they were people that would remember along the way and not just at the end. Birthdays and anniversaries can be really good for that. But you might find birthdays and anniversaries really difficult for a host of reasons. Some of you will like Valentine's Day tomorrow. Others of you, men, will hate it. Others of you, for different reasons, will hate it. It will come as a pressure and you'll be unsure how to cope with it because of all kinds of things going on in our lives. So maybe that's not for you, but you need other moments. Other moments that are part of the rhythm of your life that cause you to stop and to be thankful. I hate to say that Thanksgiving might be a good idea in that regard, but it might be. 
Something that causes us, in the rhythm of our lives, to step out of it for a while and to share with those God's placed around us and to give thanks to him for how far we've come, that we might have energy and faith for how far we still need to go. I'm not sure we do that enough. For, for me, meals are so important because we try to make meals meaningful. We try to make the conversation around mealtimes uh, uh, worth something. That's not always easy, depending on who's around the table uh, and the age of the people around the table and so on. But at particular times, as I look back over, uh, over a period of time, some of the best moments of commemoration are around the meal table, especially when you don't see people for a while and you begin to share what's been going on and you think, wow, that's what God has done. And it builds faith in our lives. We have a lot of pictures in our house that are of people that are around us. In that sense, it it looks very egotistic because they're all pictures of us primarily. And people around us think, what's that all about? But for us, that's a very important help to remember. It's us at different stages. You think, we were going through a wickedly hard time there, but God pulled us through. That was a moment when we felt like God had brought things together and we were celebrating as we went to that place or we shared that moment in in time. They're really important moments. They're they're our stones. But what what are yours? What are the things in your life that keeps you commemorating even in the middle of the battle, in the middle of the journey? Uh, Very quickly, the word cooperation. The... uh, Two tribes that were going to stay on the east side of the Jordan got chatting with Moses previously and now with Joshua. And Joshua said, yeah, absolutely, you can stay there. Leave your wives and children there. But you fighting men, you're coming with us until we've taken the whole land. You see, to enter God's promise means helping others to enter theirs. Who are you helping to enter God's promise for them? Again, don't leave it as a fuzzy, fuzzy thought. If I asked you to run, who are you helping? Who are you getting alongside and helping them move more fully into what God has for them? Each of us needs a name of somebody or more than one person because we're called to do this together. It's no good you entering your promise and looking around saying, where's everybody else? It's a lonely place. To be in the promised land by yourself is miserable, isn't it? We've got to take one another with us into our promises. So who are you encouraging, cheering on, helping? And then finally, congratulations, and we're coming into land with this one. Congratulations. Who are you congratulating? Who are you congratulating? As you stop and commemorate... As you share life with one another, urging each other on into God's promise, who are you congratulating, honouring and thanking? It takes us full circle. We began with continuity, this idea that it's God's work that goes on through his people and keeps going on. It's about God and what he is doing. Who are you congratulating, honouring and thanking? The central part of the book of Joshua, I think, addresses this 
head on. You see, in the central part of the book of Joshua, chapters uh, 5, 6, 7, and 8, I think they are, uh, talks about taking Jericho, and then goes on to talk about taking the city or the village of Ai, or Ai. So think about this with me for a moment. Joshua, God gave Joshua instructions to take Jericho. You know the one where they would march round? Once, and then they go around seven times on the seventh day, and they blow their trumpets, and they shout, and the walls would come down. That's what God can do. That was the strategy for taking Jericho. And they took Jericho. But there was a very important instruction, uh, verse 19 of chapter 6. When you take Jericho, all the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. They belong to God. Now, why is that so important? Well, war was a business, as you might understand in those days. In 2 Samuel, a few books are hence from where we are now, it says, in the spring when the kings went to war, like at 7.30 in the morning when everyone gets up and goes to work. That's what they did. Because that's how they earned their living. You took the loot, the spoils, from the villages and the people and the cities that you conquered. And you would bring them back. And that silver and that gold, that would be yours. It was payment for the victory that you had won. It was your commission. It was what you'd earned. And so you would have a prestigious house and a flashy chariot because you'd won lots of battles. And your flashy house and your prestigious chariot would tell everybody else what a good soldier you were because look at all the money that you'd earned doing your work. It was a business. So rightly so. When they conquered Jericho, who won the battle? God. So who gets the spoil? God. And that's what they did. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. The fall of Jericho there must have been a huge encouragement. And in the beginning of the next chapter, chapter 7, they start having this quick conversation about Ai, which compared to Jericho was a tiny little city. It was just a village with a few men in it. And so what do they do? Joshua said, well, we don't all need to go. We'll just take a few uh, thousand. So about 3,000 men went up to this little village. they just conquered Jericho. They go up to this little village and they get absolutely rooted. And some of their men are killed. And they come back to the camp absolutely distraught at what had happened. We've just conquered Jericho and we can't even take this little village AI. What on earth has gone wrong? And Joshua, the book of Joshua explains what had gone wrong. One man at Jericho had kept the silver and gold for himself. Achan had said, no, no, no. I deserve this silver and gold. It's my, I have won this. I have earned this. This is my victory. God will not tolerate us taking credit for what is his alone. And so he was dealt with ever so severely. So as you look at your life, look at where you are now, who gets the credit? Who gets the credit? Who are you congratulating? Everywhere we look, there are symbols, aren't there, in our own culture of self-congratulation. Houses that are just a little bit bigger than we need and cars that just go a little bit faster than we actually need and clothes that are a little bit more indulgent than we actually need. Symbols of our value. Look what I've achieved. Look what I've done. I'm worth this. 
Who are you congratulating as you seek to enter more fully into God's promise? Remember, says the book of the law, the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms His covenant which He swore to your forefathers as it is today. It's all God's. It's all from Him. I mean, it's all because of Him. Pride is self-congratulation. Arrogance is self-congratulation. Looking down on others is self-congratulation. And so the Bible says, look, humble yourselves. And he will lift you up. Humble yourselves and he will take you more fully into his promises for your life. The Lord has done this and it's marvellous in our eyes. Let's pray.